Let excellence become your brand. When you are excellent, you become unforgettable. That is a quote by Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Trina Talk. This is the podcast where guests share their stories of pursuing their passions, living a fulfilled life, and empowering others. Each week, I talk with inspiring leaders, business owners, and people with amazing stories from around the world in unscripted conversations as they share their successes and failures. This podcast is all about empowering you to keep striving in your personal and professional life. I am your host, Trina L. Martin. If you've been watching the news these days, you will see that cyber attacks are on the rise and some of the biggest companies are being taken over by hackers. If you are a small or medium-sized business, you cannot afford to not operate securely. With Trina L. Martin Technology Consulting, we will help you use secure communication technologies so that you can communicate securely with your clients, customers, and employees while maintaining productivity and profitability. If you're ready to elevate your business operations, please reach out to me at nextlevel at trinalmartin.com. Welcome to episode 141. The topic of this week's episode is give up control to get control. My guest this week is Rail Bricker. From being 6,000 feet underground to starting an education business that grew to have 4,000 plus students to spending years working in venture capital, Rail has seen it all. He's listed companies on two international stock exchanges and his financial services group has settled more than $3 billion in loans in 18 years. Rail has diverse work history combined with his unique global research interviews with companies in more than 25 countries. With over 30 years as a serial entrepreneur, Rail Bricker helps businesses succeed by delivering a series of dynamic talks on building businesses by thinking outside the box. Rail has been presenting for many years on business, culture, finance, investing, diversity, and ethics. The learning is best practice combined with practical experience and achieving business excellence. Hi, Rail. Welcome to Trina Talk. I'm excited to have you on. It's great to be here from the West Coast of Australia. Great. I am just excited. You're author, you're entrepreneur, you have several degrees. We were just talking before we went live and you were saying that you're you're a bit of a tech fanatic just like I am. So uh, we have some things in common. Um, but how I like to start off the show is I like to ask people, so tell the listeners who you are and how you got to be the rail that you are today. So who am I? I am a I'm a serial entrepreneur, but who's driven by a simple philosophy that came from my late father. Now, his philosophy was one day when he retires, he wants 40 years experience, not one year, 40 times over. Mm. And, 
and and I guess he he died too young. He died when he was fifty nine, and he never got to retire. But but philosophically, that was something he said to me in my teens, and I embraced that. I wanted every year to be different. You know, you go out, you grab things, you do things, not because it's a bright shiny object, just because it's something that builds your character and makes you a better person. And so, and 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 at this point in my life, it's about being driven by helping other people, by seeing the lights come on their eyes, by seeing them join the dots, by going, that makes a lot of sense. And that's what drives me today after, you know, 30 plus years of building businesses on two continents. Wow. So we're going to get into all of that, but I'm looking at your background. It's very lively, very colorful. You got the hats, you got the um, different Saying there, thoughts. Tell me a little bit about what's going on back there and tell us whether that's a virtual background or not. No, that's a real background behind me. Um, so the hats on the top are for Debona Six hats. I do a lot of of training work, and we want Debona Six thinking hats where to control the flow, you have six different hats and you hand them out to people. I haven't done it since COVID, so I'm not 100% convinced about passing hats between people's heads in the new world. We haven't worked that out yet. But but yes, I did a lot of work in the Debono Six Thinking Hats. And so when someone has a problem, each hat represents a different person, has to ask different types of questions or give different type of information to them. So it's a way of, of getting mastermind groups to work in a very efficient manner. The, all the wooden blocks that, that 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 come up behind me, and I'll step out the way for a second. The wooden blocks were, I, I have all these things I speak about as a speaker, as a mentor, as a coach, and things I wrote about in my book, and I couldn't explain it to people. I, I, I was struggling to explain how all this fits together under this theme of something called business excellence. What makes businesses better? And, 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 and as a side, why excellence? Because we can never be perfect, so we can only be on the journey to being the best we can be, which is excellent. And anyway, I was sitting in a coffee shop one Saturday morning, and I was drawing on my laptop. You know, you're a tech person, so I love the fact that, you know, flip over the screen, sit there with a pen, get creative. And I started drawing a house. My engineering background kicked in, and I started drawing a house. And I started trying to fit the pieces of what I speak about into this house. And I looked over at a table, three or four tables away, and there was a kid, couldn't have been more than five, playing with wooden blocks and building a house out of wooden blocks. And, you know, you have these aha moments in your life. And I went, if that kid instinctively understands that you can put foundations in, you can put walls in and a roof, then why can't I use that model to explain what I do to people? And so that's exactly how, what those blocks are all about. I actually build a model. Those are all magnetic. They're wooden blocks that I made in my shed, um, painted different colors, but they, they, they form a model of business excellence. And, and what is that model? It's about the fact that culture and ethics are your cornerstones of any good business, but your people, your diversity, your systems, your strategies, all those things make up the walls. And then, um, on the top end there, you'll see the, the red pointed roof that points upwards. And that's because it's our growth potential that's unlimited. Mm. So that's that model. I use those. Actually, they're all magnetic. They stick on a board. 
I use those often on stage to explain different concepts, but they also make a fun background behind me. They do. They're very colorful and I really like them. And I actually like what you're saying. And we're going to talk more about that as well. But, you know, you you said you're a serial entrepreneur. I know you're an author, you're a speaker, but in some of your, um, tell me about some of your entrepreneurial journeys. Okay. So um, it, my, 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 my first one actually started when I was 14, right? And, and I worked in electronic shops. I grew up in a very lower middle class household. Um, never really short of anything, but not really lots of money. That was probably where it was. I went to government schools, you know, uh, not private education, etc. And I got my first job when I was 14 in an electronics shop. So in those days, people, you know, went to buy car radios and electronic components. And I was kind of a bit of an electronics nerd and built all the stuff as well. And I remember very clearly somebody coming in to buy a new radio for their car and, and being the totally overzealous, uh, total believer in myself. This person, there was a, a young lady said, oh, I don't know how to put this in my car. And I said, don't worry, come over to my house this afternoon. And I'll fit it for you. And I struggled and I actually damaged a car and it actually cost me money. <laughs> and, I, and I realized at that point that I needed to be an entrepreneur. I, I love that entrepreneurial feeling of business, but that whatever I did had to be in my head, not my hands. <laughs> and, and even though today I have a shed full of power tools and I do a lot of creative stuff with wood and carving and stuff, but it's not craftsman quality. It's quality enough for me and my wife to display around our house. And so, but I knew early on in my entrepreneurial journey that it had to be um, head driven, not heart, not hands driven. So that was, the, that's, uh, you know, m my first real venture started the year Nelson Mandela was released. Okay. So my wife and I share very special time with Nelson Mandela, even though the, the late Nelson Mandela never knew that. <laughs> uh, and I'll explain what that is. On the 11th of February, 1990, at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, Nelson Mandela walked free from jail after 27 years. On the 11th of February, 1990, at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, we got married. At the exact same time and day that Nelson Mandela was released, um, we, we got married. And so I said, I always share a special time with Nelson Mandela. He came out of freedom. Okay, we won't go down the rest of that joke about my marriage, no. but I'm still married 32 years later. Um, but a couple of months after that, we started a business in South Africa. We were two young MBA graduates, 26 years old. Our business was fundamentally flawed. Um, why was it flawed? Because we were 26 year old MBAs who'd never run a business and thought we'd go out and tell other people how to run their businesses. So there was fundamental flaw in that, in that theory, but we actually won some contracts bizarrely. And about six months later, those contracts dried up and we went, oh, my God, what do we do now? And we were working with a, a, a place called the Institute of Marketing Management who ran a diploma course. Now, put that into a, an American context, almost like a junior college type of, of arrangement where students could go and do a diploma, which was equivalent to a degree or a junior degree. Um, they said to us, look, you guys are so well qualified why don't you start teaching our course? And we thought, God, we've got nothing to lose. We may as well do it. And hence the name of my book, Dive In and Adjust Your Course While You're Moving, because that's exactly what it is. It's about just diving in and doing it. So 
we started this college and we did we had probably not even understood the hunger amongst the majority black population in South Africa for an education. Um, we didn't even we hadn't even thought through that as young white South African males. We didn't actually understand this hunger and need in South Africa until we got into the business. And then suddenly these students were arriving at our door, clutching a piece of paper. And that piece of paper was their graduation certificate from their final year at school with a 35% aggregate mark. Now, I don't know what that would be in a GPA, but it would be a very low GPA. Okay. And these students were arriving at our door clutching this and going, we want an education. You know, Nelson Mandela's released. You know, there's going to be fair and uh, full and fair, uh, free elections shortly. We want to be part of this growth in South Africa, but we need an education. And they'd come out of a terrible school system. And so we were in the right place at the right time. And we had 20 students at the end of 1990. And by the end of 1990, or well, middle of 1996, when we reversed that into a shell, we had 4,000 students over six campuses. And probably 85 to 90% of those were from previously disadvantaged backgrounds. So it was an amazing journey, an amazing business, and an amazing impact that we could have on people's lives and make their lives better. So it was, it was an amazing part of my entrepreneurial journey without design. And, I, and when, I, when young entrepreneurs ask me, what's the best advice I can give them? I say, put the spreadsheets away. Go with your gut. If you think it's a good idea, and I've had really bad ideas in the past, uh, you know, lost money on things I've invested in and tried businesses, but so what? But if you don't back yourself, if you're not prepared to back yourself, that's what we did. We backed ourselves. We worked it out as we went along. We made up our own rules. We, we were the person you would hate to be competing with mm -hmm. because we had no fear and nothing to lose. <laughs> you don't want them as your competitor because we would just go and dive in and do stuff and go, oh, it worked. Or no, it didn't work. Didn't make a difference to us. Wow. That's that's a great story. And I, I like the title of your book, Dive In and Adjust Course While You're Moving, um, because yeah. that's all you can do, right? You can't you can't sit and think about it all the time. You just have to do and see yeah. how it comes out. You stop analyzing at some point and you go, you know, the, the numbers make sense or we at least think they make sense. But until we actually get out there and sell, and, and, and at the end of the day, I talk about selling, but every business is about selling. Mm -hmm. No matter what you're doing, if you don't sell, there's no revenue and there's no business. So, you know, it, you may not feel like you're selling. And in fact, part of what I teach that we were talking before we started recording about colors and behavioral colors, I talk, I teach people to stop selling, mm. but to create an environment that makes it people for, easy for people to buy rather than to sell to them. But, but it doesn't matter. We're always selling. But you have to actually get out there and sell in order to get your business to go. And that's what it is. Wow. So true. And I love that. And let's, let's continue on with what you're saying as far as what you're teaching. You're teaching people um, to stop selling because we all hate to be sold to, right? And and I have this problem with my business. I've, I always feel, you know, it's like, oh, selling is almost like a dirty bird, right? You're like, oh, I don't want to sell people. 
Because I'm on LinkedIn and I, of course, I get the connection request. People who don't know me and they're like, oh, I want to join your network. And then the minute you accept them, they're going, oh, I can help you do this, this and this. And you're going, well, I don't even know you. I don't know you. I don't know if you can even do that the way that I need it to be done. So talk about that and and how like someone like me will approach selling without falling into that category. So that's selling. <laughs> yes. so, uh, I mean, it's interesting. You, you say that I have exactly the same thing. I get, you know, I have a fairly big LinkedIn network now. And, and so I get, you know, 20, 30, 40 requests a week to, to join. And I, and I basically look at where they're from mm-hmm. and who their common connections are. And then I'll make, yeah. And, and sometimes I'll go, I'm not sure about this one, but let me see how long it takes right. them to try and sell me something. Mm-hmm. It's just a game. And I know that as soon as they try and sell me something, I will just disconnect them and just forget about them. Mm-hmm. I, and the other one is the people who you connect with and then they go, so how are you? Yeah. Okay. And, and, and what's the biggest challenge following facing you today? All right. Right. And I understand the logic of where they're going with that, but, but let me, let me give an example from one of my courses that we run. Okay. So, so putting that in context, we talk about something called behavioral colors. So th- there's a, a, a profiling tool called DISC that when I say DISC to most people, they go, oh, not that old thing. And I go, yes, it is old. It's been around since 1929, DISC. And there are four major suppliers of it around the world. But the principles behind DISC, which is dominance, influence, steadiness, and compliance for behavioral styles. If I told you you were a high I, an influencer, right? You would say, great. And three months' time, if I asked you, you'd say, what did you say three months ago? But if I told you that you're a yellow-red combination, you would remember that. Like, people just remember those colors. So that's why we've brought it down into this color world rather than, and that's why also there's a colorful background. But but that's why we brought it into the color world. Okay. So, and each color that we talk about has a different driver to buy. What is their motivator to buy? Some people make decisions quickly, some make it slower, some make it about teamwork, relationships, all different things. So when I'm teaching people to sell, and I'm talking one-on-one or Zoom or phone conversation or whatever, you don't know, the, I don't know your behavior, right? And so I'm, I want to ascertain your behavior. So I'd say, hey, you know, hey, Trina, nice to talk to you, but whatever, uh, what can I help you with? And you say, oh, please explain to me what you do right? So now I'm lost because you haven't told me what you want out of my life or what I can do for you. And so we use a technique where we go, okay, uh, Trina, you know, most of my customers or in my experience, customers come to me for one of four reasons. They come to me because we're easy to do business with and we have the right price or They want to come to me because we've got a great team and we build a great team of of advocates around us. Or they come to me because I've built long-term relationships with them. Or they come to me because I can provide them all the statistics and data and proof about our product. Right? Which one of those appeals to you? I'm not selling to you. I'm asking you to tell me what your dominant behavior style is so that then you tell me, oh, I love relationships. I love building relationships. I don't buy from people until I get to know them and I've got a relationship. Great. You've now told me exactly what I need to do with you. Okay. 
you know, I need to now talk to you about your 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 kids, your family, you know, what it's like in, in Texas, you know, what's happening there with, with COVID, how are you feeling? I mean, that's very topical now, okay? But, you know, you, you'll build relationships and you'll finish the call with, that was a fantastic, let me do some research and I'll come back to you because people who in that relationship mold don't make decisions quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I'll go, yeah, I'll come back to you in a week. Or let me find out for you how that works and I'll come back to you. And then a week later, you go back. How are your kids? How was the, the, the baseball game on the weekend? You build relationship before you sell. So in that particular environment, in that quadrant of what we call in that quadrant. So this is a 12-week course that we run, right? It's not just, you know, 12 weeks, an hour to a week or two days or whatever. But but that's, you know, part of it. That's how, how we take a completely different approach to selling by understanding your audience first. How many times have you been into a home open, a real estate agent? And the realtor, you walk in, you say, tell me about this house. And they go, same story. They haven't asked you, have you got, you know, wife, husband, kids, grandchildren, you need a big garden, you you don't want, you know, they haven't asked you anything. They've just, same story, mm-hmm. next person, same story. Typical real estate salesman, you want to get out of that mold. Right, right. Oh, and that makes sense. You're asking people what appeals to them. So you're saying, you know, you're building that relationship. You're finding out what matters to them before you lead into a line of question. Well, I guess it's better framed question based on what they said that is important to them. And then that helps build that relationship. But it's so amazing to me how many people don't do that. Absolutely. And, And interestingly, when you look at the statistics, so only the Ds, the D-I-S-C, or the Reds in my world, mm-hmm. only the Reds, uh, the people with a red behavioral style like being sold to. Now, you might think, oh, you don't know anyone who likes being sold to. But they do. There are. And, but when you look at the world statistics, that makes up 10 to 11% of our population worldwide. So if that's the traditional selling that you're doing, which is go in hard, sell, punch, 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 makes no sense because you're only going to be successful. In fact, I did a sales training course 15 years ago. And the guy stood up and said, well, for every 10 calls, one's going to be successful. Now, 15 years later, I understand perfectly why, because their techniques were all aimed at only one group of the population, which made up 10%. That's why we're only getting one in 10 success rate. And so you want to go from one in 10 to eight out of 10 by, by you know, using the different colors. By, you know, I'll use my glasses. If somebody is behaviorally a yellow, in other words, the yellow style, which is all about teamwork, it's about fun. It's about how is this going to build my team and have fun? That's yellow. Well, you have to look at them. I'll put on my funny yellow glasses for the video, which is a little hard to explain on the audio. But... Um, <laughs> the that's what you're trying to do you're trying to appeal to them by telling them how much fun it is how much how good it is for the team you're not telling them that they have to buy the product Mm. very interesting very interesting and and that 
that would appeal to me as, you know, a lot more than someone just saying, hey, you know what? I got this, 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 and then this, you know, how can I help you? Because just like you said, I get those LinkedIn and hi, how are you? And I'm thinking, you know, what are we long lost buddies? You know, you already know what they're trying to set you up for. So it's like, I don't even, I don't even answer them, but you know, and, and, and this is another thing that I hate. And you can tell me your um, thoughts on this as you get the request and you know, they're going to sell you, but it's, Instead of them coming straight out and selling, they're like, oh, how about, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to jump on a call? And it's like, well, no, I'm very busy during my day. No, I'm not just jumping on calls, but random people. What do you think about that method of selling? Yeah, I mean, I understand why, Mm -hmm. because it is easier to talk to somebody face to face than by email or by worst case LinkedIn messenger. Mm -hmm. Um, So I understand the logic. But there has to be a compelling reason. So, so I started a couple of days ago, a, a great friend of mine started, he looked at my website and said, you need to, to highlight on your website some of the pain points that people are feeling in the leadership space and the, and the business space. And if you highlight those pain points, then people are much more interested in talking to you. Um, in engaging with you. So I interviewed a, a, an influencer, LinkedIn influencer, who has, you know, 200,000 followers. Um, I, in, I interviewed him and he said something very interesting to me. I, and I asked him a question. I said, I look at Gary V, uh, you know, he has a million or 2 million followers. And, and I said, there are still 5,000 people making inane comments about every post that Gary V puts out. And 10,000 people, and yes, he has 100,000 views or whatever, but they're 10,000, and you look at the comments, none of them, some of them are trying to engage with Gary V, and you know it's his PAs or VAs that are responding. <laughs> but he said something interesting to me. He said, educate, educate, educate. So what he does is interesting. He takes a Gary V article. So Gary V writes a great article. It doesn't compete with him. I mean, they're both influencers in different ways. And he doesn't just comment. He comments on it because he finds that when he comments, other people want to connect with him if his comment is real. Not just great comment, Gary Vee, but some intellectual comment. But then he might take that and repost it on social media. Okay? So he reposts it on social media, say on LinkedIn, and then makes a comment of his own why he posted it. So a good 500 words on why he posted it, right? And what his view is of that same topic. But because he's reposted, anybody who's liked or commented on that now gets told a, a post that you've liked or commented was shared by so-and-so, okay? Mm-hmm. So all he's doing is building interaction. He's not selling them anything at that point. He's making comments. He's establishing his status as an expert. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, you know, and then when people, then he finds that people start reaching out to him for speaking engagements, for personal branding, which is the area that he works in, Mm -hmm. et cetera, because he's not out there selling. He's Mm -hmm. just out there engaging and educating people. You know, I, I've been accused of being all business, no heart. 
um, for it, it's a long story how that came about. But but it's taken me a few years to to start being personal on social media, even LinkedIn, mm. to share personal stuff because that's what people right. engage with now. I mean, I'm not an expert in social media by any stretch of the imagination, but I talk to lots of people who are and are successfully using LinkedIn to sell product and sell services. And they say to me, it is a long process. It is a process of education. It's not a connect with somebody and whack them around the head with a sales technique. And then you see these people running polls. You know, what's the biggest challenge facing you today? And you go, why are you asking? Because all you're going to do is just spit that back at me in some form of sales question. So uh, it's a funny world in which we live now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I've heard the same thing what you were saying about genuinely comment on the post. But I had not done that to repost that comment that you put to repost it on your platform to say, okay, here, this is why I commented or this is what I think. Um, and that's a great way. But yeah, it's just selling is almost like, yeah, it's like a dirty, grungy thing. It's like you don't want to be bothered. But yet we all have to do it. Like you said, if you don't sell, you don't have a business. So that's that's the key. And, and like I said, that's something that I always kind of struggle with, too, because I don't want to be that person that I look at and go, oh, my God, you know, we know what they're getting ready to hit me with. So you know, let me just ignore them. So that is very, that's a good, good thing to um, remember. And you specialize in, like we were talking before, in a lot of the soft skills that go along with business. Talk about some of those. Okay. So, so my, my two areas or three areas that I work in, I mean, those blocks that I mentioned, so culture, ethics, inspiration, diversity, leadership, those are the areas that I work in. And and I and I love talking at tech conferences. I mean, I love talking at all conferences because that's what you do as a professional speaker. But um, I love the tech conferences because I I can I can empathize with the guys and girls in the audience who are tech people, and I'm this originally tech guy. And I tell them, don't talk to me about technology because I did my masters in software engineering 32 years ago. So it's a long time ago. It, the technology's moved on somewhat. I mean, I love tech. Uh, I'm coming to you from my studio, which has five screens in front of me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I have four cameras set up and five screens and all sorts of different things running here. So, so I love I love that part of it. But but I'm fascinated by culture. And there's a I, if you don't mind, I'll indulge you with, with, with a quick story of how I got in, interested in culture. So I worked on the mines at Anglo-American. Anglo-American was the largest mining company in South Africa and one of the largest mining companies in the world. And uh, the reason I worked there, I got a scholarship from them to do my engineering studies because I could, my parents couldn't afford to send me to university. So the only way I could get there was to get a scholarship. So I worked for them and, and after graduation because I had to. So I worked underground for about 19 months um, at 6,000 foot underground, which is a whole different conversation. Then I got a transfer to head office. Now, as a 22-year-old working at the corporate head office, I was a C4 level engineer. What did that mean? It meant I parked in the third parking lot from the office. 
if I was a D1 level engineer, I would have parked in the second parking lot. Now, I know you were in the military, and so you very much, in, you know, understand that that corporate hierarchical yeah. structure, okay? And and you know, so that was that was the type of organization. I got this 22-year-old. The only office was the corner office, which was bizarre because there were people who hated me from the moment I arrived there because I had the corner office. I didn't design it. I didn't yearn for it. I didn't even understand the implication. I just was given it because the only office that was free. Anyway, um, I worked there and I was working on a mine site about four hours flying time out of Johannesburg. And Anglo-American had their own fleet of private jets. So, which was pretty cool for a 22-year-old to fly in the corporate jet. I drove up to the to the uh, uh, hangar where our corporate jets flew from and I parked my car there. And then I suddenly saw these Mercedes-Benz and Rolls-Royce and everything else dropping off these guys in very fancy suits and, you know, highly polished shoes and all that kind of stuff. And they were dropped off by their chauffeurs. And I had driven myself there. I was in jeans and an open neck shirt because I was going to a mine. And these guys were in suits and ties. Get on the plane. I sit right in the back, my first flight. We take off. The pilot puts a head around the cockpit and says, you can move around now. So I think, well, I'm definitely the youngest person and the most junior in the organization on this plane. And next to me on the floor, because if you know the, the, like the Citation corporate jet, right at the back, there's a single seat. And, and there's a little place there for a cooler. Now, depending on the country. In, in Australia, we call it a Nesky. In South Africa, we call it a cooler bag. I think in the US, you call it an icebox. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was an icebox with, with drinks in it. So I got up and I was busy taking drinks out to offer to my fellow travelers. And I got a tap on the shoulder. Now, Thankfully, it wasn't the hand of God because I was at 40,000 feet. All right. But it was the senior director of Anglo-American. And, and, and in South Africa, if you were director of Anglo, you were right up there. You know, you were in the upper echelons of society. And he said to me, please don't do that. And I said, I'm happy to do that. I mean, he still had his jacket on. He didn't take his jacket off, you know, that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, no, in our planes, the most senior person has to serve the drinks, not the most junior. Now, you were in the military. Can you imagine people with all the brass on their shoulders no. serving you a drink? No. no. Okay. Right. So, so, and this organization was as structured as the military. But within the confines of the plane, it got turned on its head. And I was 22, and it took me probably to age 30-odd to understand that, to understand how that cultural shift in the plane could apply to companies across the world. And so that shaped my thinking and every business. So my first business, my education business, by the time we reverse listed it, we had 160 academic staff around the country, over six campuses. We had admin staff. We built a culture of that, that didn't have those hierarchies in it. But I always understood there was hope for corporates. If in the plane they could turn it on its head, why couldn't they do that in the corporation? And so that's kind of where my interest in culture came from. So fast forward to all these years, I I wrote my book. um, 2015, I spoke at a conference on mortgages because that was my business that I started in in 2001. And I just topped two billion in mortgages. I'd been made a fellow of the industry. There are about 50 fellows and about 16,000 brokers. And I spoke at the conference on how to build a mortgage business. Um, and, and, And really... I, I then started writing a book because I thought that was fun. 
I'm going to write a book. I sat in a plane with an iPad writing the first 2,000 words, which is really hard because you have to watch every finger because you've got no tactile feeling. I got home. It took me nine months. I wrote the book, put it away for two and a half years because I had imposter syndrome. I didn't think anyone wanted to hear my story. And I was then I, I met a publisher, and she said, it's a great book. Let's publish it. I was at a conference in 2017 before I published the book, late 2017, in Auckland in New Zealand. And, and I, I, I saw an old friend of mine. His name's Frederick Curran, based out of Singapore. And Frederick does this thing about what's your vision. And he spent five hours with me just talking, shooting the breeze, talking. And he turned around to me and said, your passion in the world is culture. You need to go out and grab that. And I said, funny you say that. There are two chapters in my book on culture, and yet, no, you haven't seen the book. And from just talking to me, he worked out that that's the area I needed to pursue. And so... I went and I said, yeah, I'm absolutely passionate about creating rich and robust cultures in organizations and with a view to business excellence. I mean, that's my branding is business excellence, but it's about make your business more excellent than it is now by creating a rich and robust culture. And in order to add value to my clients, I went out and interviewed companies. So I've interviewed 89 companies now in 25 different countries. Um, and, and the reason I did that is because I wanted to know outside of Australia and South Africa where I've worked, what is the rest of the world doing? Um, I really have to do redo a lot of those interviews now post-pandemic because a lot has changed. But that was an amazing insight into corporate culture and leadership and the relationships between all these things. And, and, there, and I've developed a model around that. Um, I'm going to do that quickly and just carry on talking, where there's this relationship between culture, leadership, and strategy. And if you don't have all three of those components in an organization, if you, are, if you are just one of those or two of those things, okay, you'll end up with a weird thing that will happen. And that is, is if you have leadership and a great culture but no strategy, you are in the... It, 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 you are like a ship with, with, with that has no direction, okay? You don't know where you're going. If you have a culture and a strategy and no leaders, okay, you're rudderless. There's no one steering the ship. And if you have leadership and strategy but a terrible culture or no culture, you be calmed. You're like a sailing ship sitting out there with no wind. You're not moving anywhere. You're just drifting along. And so that's the kind of, where I've, where I've evolved to over this time from all these interviews, and that's the, the situations and frameworks that I work with in organizations to put that in. So that's what I spend my time doing now. I still see mortgage clients because I've got 4,500 clients who have personal relationships with me. They want to see me. They want to talk to me about their future, their mortgages, their properties, their retirement. So I still see them. I have a team of people who support me. Um, we have a great culture too, but I have a team of people who support me and they do all the paperwork. But that's so I split my time now between seeing clients and helping them on their journey to retiring, retiring wealthy and working with companies and leaders to create business excellence and a measurable culture. That's the big thing. We have tools to be able to measure culture and see the cultural improvement. Wow. 
That sounded like a sales pitch, but it wasn't meant to be. Sorry. No, I mean, I, I love it. I understand it. And I, I don't think I know a lot of businesses, they don't focus on culture and that is the key. They wonder why they can't retain people, why the morale is low. Um, It's culture, you know, and I, I speak from experience because I have had jobs before I decided to finally just go full out on my entrepreneurial journey that for all intents and purposes, um, it was a good job. The salary was good, but the culture, I hated it. And it was like, you know, I don't care how much money you're paying me. I don't want to stay here. And I think so many times businesses and especially the people that they have in what we call, you know, supervisory roles. I, I'm like, you know, I'm from the military, so I'm very careful on when I use the word leader because not everyone is a leader. Um, but the people that they have in supervisory roles, they really can taint and make a toxic culture. And I think that is what really plays on whether you retain people or whether you're not. And, and nine times out of 10, your good people will leave because of that culture. People don't leave because of the job. They leave because of the bad management. Right. I mean, that's, you know, the other thing is I read an article a while ago and, and I, I quote it sometimes, but is there a value in, in an employee's mind to culture? In other words, would somebody on $100,000 a year salary in a toxic culture organization take a $90,000 a year job or an $80,000 a year job to work for an organization with a fantastic culture. And more and more research is saying absolutely that. Yep, yeah. I would. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a number at which you're going to go, no, I can't afford right. it. Right. But, but there is a number. There mm-hmm. is a number in people's head that says, if I can get a job in that, we'll use Google. I mean, you know, because everyone knows about the bean bags and the, right. the, 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 the hockey tables and the free drinks and whatever. So, so that was always the, you know, the employer of choice. And, and I, I, we often use the word Google-esque, you know, mm-hmm. companies trying to, to create a Google-type environment in their organization. In fact, my staff here keep saying to me every day, they'll go, oh, have you gone to buy the couches and the bean bags yet for our, for our break room? And I go, no, because you'll spend more time in there. And they go, no, we won't. No, we won't. Oh, okay. But, but, but yes. Yeah, so so the, the, the culture, will people desperately take a job at an organization, get paid less? Now, I think it's unethical if companies know they've got a great culture and pay less. Right. Because they know they can attract people. So I think you still have to pay people what they're worth. You said something earlier in that regard. You said you hate selling and you feel, oh, whatever, you know, it's not me. And I, I've suffered from that and I probably still do. And I know every speaker buddy, every consultant, mentor and coach that I've, I know suffers from the same imposter syndrome. We work with clients and you do too. And you go, the clients go, God, Trina's amazing, right? That was amazing. You transformed my life. You transformed my business. And then when you're talking to the next client, you're going, am I worth what I'm asking them for? Okay. That is just such a classic imposter syndrome. We all suffer from it. So 
you know, this sounds like a, a, an intervention session, but no, it's not. We all suffer from that 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 classic. Um, I want to charge this, and and there's a, a, a well-known speaker in the US, David Newman. Uh, I interviewed David on my podcast, and and I've been to a number of his courses, and met him in Denver in 2019 at the National Speakers Association conference, and. David says, whatever you think you're worth, double it. Mm -hmm. Double your price. And you know what? You'll be surprised when people say yes. You know, so the the classic, we're talking about sales, the classic salesman story when someone walks into the store and says, how much are those shoes? And you say $50. And then they don't blink. So you say each. (laughs) And when they don't blink again, you say plus tax. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because uh, I've learned that from being a professional speaker and going through my business. My my speaking coach is Lisa Nichols. I don't know if you've heard of it, but kind of the same thing. You know, you're going to get paid what you're worth and, you know, stand behind it. What, what your fee is, is your fee. And people won't blink at it. The people who really want to do business with you um, won't. So, yeah, I'm slowly getting out of that. Um, imposter syndrome um, phase where you're like, ooh, you know, ooh, is that okay? Is that, but you're like, you know, no, I have the experience. I'm worth it. They're paying for my expertise and that's what I'm giving. I mean, what they forget is that that expertise is based on 30 years of experience and probably two days or three days or depending on, you know, I like to customize every single talk that I do. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't always take me two or three days. It might take me two or three hours. Right. But that original talk took me two or three days or two weeks. And, and time and money that I invested in my speaking coach yes. helping me perfect that speech. So they're not paying you for the hour or for the half day or the day that you're there. Mm-hmm. They're paying you for all the work that's gone into it up front. Right. Exactly. And that's what people forget because they only see the hour. Right. And and that's what they think about. Oh, for an hour? It's like, well, no, it's more than an hour. Um, so yeah, yes. we can we can get into that uh yeah, forever. Um <laughs> I'm gonna start with my questions. Um shoot. yeah, so I, I hope you're ready because and she's saying someone who was in the military shoot, probably not a good thing. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm I'm tame now, I'm retired, so I, I won't take okay. that literally. All right. Who or what motivates you? Um, my family. Uh, the success of my family. When, I, when my wife and I sit down and go, we've actually raised three amazing kids who we argue with and we fight with. And we get frustrated because we see ourselves in them. Mm-hmm. But that's personal success. That's, you know, seeing the level of confidence of my older two kids who have traveled the world on their own. One of them doesn't live in Australia anymore. Um, One lived in London, came back for the pandemic. Now she's moving cities again. And just the way they're making their own future in their own lives, that's, that's what drives me. I mean, on a business level, as a speaker, I love the big stages. I love being on a big stage and, you know, a thousand people in the auditorium and you get the standing ovation and it's great. But I also love the 20 people in a classroom where you spend two or three days or three months with them, you know, a couple hours a week and you see change. 
as much as I love the adrenaline of the big stage, I also am really motivated by seeing change in people and that you see over time. So the small group facilitation, the small group training is really a lot of fun as much as it's a lot more work and a lot more time commitment that it's much more fulfilling because you're really seeing change in people. Mm. What demotivates you? Um, what demotivates me? Um, probably people who, who don't, I would say don't think like me, but that's probably self-limiting in and of itself. People who don't have a broad vision, people who don't, you know, there's a classic, I, I, I love collecting information and stories. I said to you, I like these experiences. So in the days pre-COVID when I was traveling a lot, used to be on planes a lot, and, and I'd be listening with a half an ear to a series while working on my laptop. And there was a, a classic series, I think it was um, Billions, actually, was the, was the uh, series. And the one person turns around to her mentor and says, I'll be down in the, in the, in the trenches with my troops firing. And, and the mentor says, no, as a leader, you've got to keep your arm, your gun in its holster and stand on the top of the mountain and scan the horizon. And you meet people who frustrate me, who, are the, who think they're the snipers because they're looking through this tiny little lens at a very, very narrow target and are not seeing the big picture. That's probably my biggest demotivator is when people dive down a rabbit hole mm. without actually having surveyed the, the ground first. Mm. I love how you put that. Um, when was a time that something was said or done to hurt you, but it worked out for your good? Um, you know what? Uh, my mentor, no, no, he doesn't hurt me, but my mentor will suddenly say, this is going to sound harsh, but, okay. Um, but sometimes it's holding that mirror up to yourself. And so there's not much that phases me. Like really and truly, I, my wife gets really frustrated with me because a friend will say something in a text and I'll say, yeah, and what? And so what? It's nothing. So nothing really phases me. But there are certain people in the world that I trust to hold a mirror up to me. And so as much as I'll go, damn, that hurt, it actually, I can see it moving me along. So the, the fact that my mentor turned around and said, you're all business, no heart in your speeches, you need to bring more heart onto the stage. That little statement changed the entire way I structure a lot of my keynotes. Mm. But mm. I didn't realize, I thought I was being professional and, you know, and imparting all this information but there was none of me on stage. It was all, it was all almost superficial and I had to bring me onto stage. Hmm. What is your fear? You know, I've always said to people, I have no fear. And, and, and then a, a, a coach of mine, a mentor said, you know, that in, in and of itself is a limiting belief. Um, I mean, use an example. When I learned to to ski, because we don't really have snow in Australia or South Africa, so I had to learn in Canada, and I and I learned at Banff in, in in just outside Calgary. And the day one, I was on the green slopes with an instructor, and day two, I was on blue, and day three, I was on black. 
because I just went, what, what is fear? Like, you always have fear. Standing up on stage, you always have fear. Do I have a great fear? I have a great fear of dying, probably, because I'll think there's still things I want to do in my life. But do I necessarily have a great fear of anything? No. Have things appeared in my life? So, I, you know, I mentioned I worked 6,000 foot underground. I was not claustrophobic at all in my life at those days. Today, as I've got older in my 50s, I've become claustrophobic in certain closed circumstances. Whereas I could crawl in a, in a mine shaft 600, 700 mils high and not feel a thing. But today I've got older, I've got cluster. I, can, I went caving with my son. And in certain sections of the cave, I did not feel comfortable. So, you know, do I fear those things? I, I fear being closed in. That's probably it. I like to see the horizon. I like to see where I am. Is there a time when you wish you had done something that you didn't? Yeah, I mean, I think... In my book, I say that I've, I sometimes mistake confidence over confidence and arrogance, and I need to actually learn the difference between them. And there were times in my life where probably my arrogance and my ego got in the way of me seeing the opportunity. And there was a particular investment opportunity probably 20 years ago um, that if I'd taken it, I'd probably been in a different financial position now. But for some reason, I just couldn't see past my own ego and I never took that opportunity up. So has it changed my life? Probably motivated me to work harder and work differently and work smarter. But yeah, I, I, that ego, ego is our worst enemy. Is there a time that you wish you had not done something? Oh, things my kids would never want to know about me. Um uh, there's probably lots of things we've done in our lives. Nothing, nothing significant though. In, in all seriousness, yeah, everything I've done, I've embraced and enjoyed. Um, from getting a pilot's license to doing a course in holistic healing and massage. Um, do I practice either of those anymore? No. Were they part of what makes me a human being? Probably, but no, nothing ever that I've gone. I should never have done that. Like, I'm probably my as much as I'm outgoing and 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 try everything. I still do have a conservative side, which, you know, that little voice on the shoulder that kicks in occasionally. Yeah, that one. Mm. What is your definition of success? Being happy, and 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 then we can go into a whole discussion on what's happiness, but <laughs> but. Being happy, I mean, just, just it, it's not about money. It's not about fame. It's not about fortune. It's about are you happy with where you are on your journey? That's why I talk about excellence as showing up as being the best you can be every day. That's success. You don't have to be. I, I, I play sport. I'm 57. I play team hockey. Now that's the stuff with a round ball on the green surface, not the flat, not the flat thing on the white surface. Okay, <laughs> just to put that into, uh, you know, so you know what I'm talking about. I still play masters level hockey in in with a group of people mostly like myself who've played at state level or better. So so good group of guys, good skill set, but I'm probably in the the middle of the team in terms of skill. 
all right? But I'm happy being part of the team and contributing my little bit to the team because the rest of our lives, we're entrepreneurs. We are it. We're not contributing to a team. Yes, I have a team in our mortgage business, but we're not contributing to the team. We are the team, whereas that's an interesting side of life. How do you recharge? Um, I exercise, which kind of sounds self-defeating, but no, I spend a lot of time exercising. Living at the coast where we do, we have 60 kilometers of coastline. My off. I drove to the studio this morning. It, it's whatever, 9 a.m. now. Um, I drove to the studio. It's four kilometers to the studio and five kilometers to the beach. And most times during summer and winter when it's nice days, I will spend at least one day a week doing a 10-kilometer walk along the beach, um, listening to music, listening to a podcast, or not listening to anything, just walking, just absorbing the beauty of where I live on the Indian Ocean. It's warm water. In summer, I'll take off my shoes and walk back the last kilometer or two in the water. Um, that's part of my recharge time. My wife and I make time to go away together. Um, we'll go and rent a cabin, go on a health retreat. Pre-2019, I used to travel a lot. And so I would travel, my wife would travel with me. In Euro in, we spent a month in Europe in 2019 um, together on holiday with the family. So that's part of the recharge. It is uh, going to yoga, going to Pilates, going to the gym, going to spin class. All those things, as much as they physically tire the body, they recharge the mind. What are you awesome at? Everything? No, I'm not <laughs> awesome at everything. Um, um, at, at getting into people's businesses, like getting to understand them, applying everything I've done in my life to their circumstance and taking me out of my own ego and understanding where they're at and being able to delve and ask them the hard questions. That's, that's what I love doing. I love exploring other people's businesses. I love success. I love other people's success and being a part of other people's success. And so that's what I love doing. That's what I, you know, and, and I'd like to think I'm awesome as a, as a, as a father and, 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 and husband, but you know, that's up to other people to comment on that. <laughs> what legacy do you want to leave? Um, I want my kids, and, and two of them are following in my footsteps already, I want to give my kids the best education that they can ever get because I think I'm not saying that education is the be-all and end-all of everything, and I know you also did an MBA at one point, but I think an education teaches us to think, and when we can think, we can apply our knowledge to anything we want. And so two of my three kids are doing master's degrees at the moment in different parts of the world. And that's the legacy. I want to, I want them to, I want to leave a legacy of making a difference in the world. So I've spent 20 years on a community school board, um, been involved in lots of charities and all sorts of things. And I hope that, that that's part of the legacy I leave. It, it's, it's not just one thing. It's not just, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with billions of dollars in it. That would be nice. That would be fantastic because you can make change in the world. But as a person, I think it's about the change that, that hopefully one day I've left the world a better place than when I arrived. 
Give the listeners one motivational takeaway. It's about giving up control to gain control. The original working title of my book was Give Up Control to Gain Control. And what did that mean? It meant do the things you're good at and you're passionate about. So, and then give up the control. We're all A-type entrepreneurs, A-type people. We want to control everything down to the font we use in everything and whatever. That's not the point. The point is employ a team around you or get support around you and let you do the things you are good at in work, in life, and in business. So in order to grow your business, give up control of the things you're not good at, but that you know how to do, and empower other people to do that. And by empowering other people, you're helping them grow in the first place, and you're you're giving yourself the freedom to do what you're good at. Mm, That was great. Okay, Rail, tell the listeners how they can connect with you, get your book, um, book you for speaking engagements, however um, they want to reach out to you. So rail at railbricker.com or the railbricker.com website. Um, LinkedIn, I'm very active on uh, Facebook, um, uh, Facebook and Instagram reasonably. Clubhouse, not so engaged, but I am out there on Clubhouse occasionally. Uh, but really, rail at railbricker.com. And a free uh, download for your listeners. If they go to the railbricker.com website, it's not off a link on the homepage, so they have to listen or see it in the show notes. It'll be railbricker.com slash free book. And they can actually download a PDF version of the book Dive In, Lessons Learned Since Business School. Great. Um, and pretty much there are, there's only one railbricker in the world, thankfully. <laughs> so it's very easy to find me. Um, and, and there are about you know, a dozen pages on Google that reference stuff I've done. Wow, Rail, this has been very, um, very exciting, very inspirational. I loved speaking with you. Hopefully we can continue to connect. I'm going to um, send you a request on LinkedIn and I won't sell you on anything. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. But um, and Absolutely. And look forward to it. It's uh, I love engaging with people. I think the more people I talk to, the more I learn about people, the richer my life. And hopefully I'm making their lives a little bit richer along the way. Yes, I think you're succeeding at that. But thank you. I don't want to hold you any longer because I know you have a busy day. Um, Mine is ending. Yours is beginning. So I just want to say thank you so much for being on Trina Talk. Thank you, Trina. It's been a fantastic conversation and easy flowing and, and fantastic. And I hope I've added value to your listeners. If you like Trina Talk Podcast, please don't forget to go out to iTunes and rate it five stars and leave a review. Also, who else in your life do you know that needs some motivation and inspiration in their life? Don't forget to share Trina Talk with them. I hope you have a great week. And remember, if you change your mindset, you can change your life. Keep striving because success is a journey, not a destination.